Um, we're in a season of Advent. If you find uh, that uh, it's really hard for you to enter into the season well, um, you maybe f- you feel like more emotionally heavy during the season than the rest of the year, uh, that's okay. Um, the church calendar has in it ebbs and flows of even emotion. Uh, if you ever celebrated Lent leading up to uh, leading up to Easter, you're supposed to be actually putting on sorrow, sadness, heaviness. You're supposed to physically fast to prepare yourself for the resurrection. Uh, Advent is a little like that as well. There's a reason why Christmas, we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December, is because around that time of year is the longest, darkest, coldest night of the year. That's when winter solstice is at its peak, and it's darker for longer. And that is when the church celebrates the light of the world coming in, when it's dark and cold. So if you feel like dark and cold in the season, you're supposed to, so that you can prepare your heart room to receive the light of the world. That's what your, your body goes through that rhythm. That's a really important thing. So if you find yourself heavy during this time of year, that's okay. In the season of Advent, what I want to do this morning is I want to talk on and talk about and teach on the subject of worship. And I think it's right and good that even culturally we celebrate Christmas with song. We celebrate Christmas with worship. Songs like Come Let Us Adore Him or Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room or Fall on Your Knees and Hear the Angels Noise? What is that word? Does anyone know? Rejoicing? Voices? Oh, it's voices. Okay, no one knew at first service. You guys, you guys are on it. Um, So to do that, uh, would you turn to Revelation chapter 4 and 5? I'm going to read this, but we're going to do a little different this morning. Um, Whenever, I'm going to read the text, and whenever it gets to uh, the chorus of heaven, like what's going on in heaven, I want us all to read it out loud together. You cool with that? Now, I'm going to be reading out of NIV. If you don't have NIV, read off the screen so we can at least have one, one voice. Um, but, and then I'll pray. Cool? Revelation chapter 4. At the back, back, back of your Bible. You guys know. You guys know. You guys. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald, encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in the front of the throne were what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, everyone, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
Whenever the living creatures gave glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding gold golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, louder now, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. Thank you, God, that this here is true reality. What's going on in the heavenlies even now, that you are on the throne and that you are worshiped. And I pray that we would have a direct link to that right now. No matter where we come from, no matter what the car ride here was like, no matter what kind of news we received this weekend, no matter how tired we are, how excited we are, what waits for us at home or what's after this, may we right now get kind of connected with what's true and real. And that's you on the throne and us worshiping you. Teach us, Lord. Shape us. Shape our desires. Shape our loves. Shape our wants. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. When I I think back uh, to the most profound moments in my life, moments where God has been near me and I knew God was directing my life and I was confident that he was leading me and had a future for me and that my life mattered. Those moments didn't come when I was reading some commentary. 
They didn't even come when I was listening to a sermon, though I believe that can happen. And they didn't even come on a missions trip or an act of service informed by my faith in Christ, though that is something worth giving your life to. When I think back to those moments that most profoundly impacted me and shaped me in my life with God, they have come during times of worship. And I'm not talking Romans 12, your life is worship. I'm talking singing loud, off-key, passionately waiting on God in worship. And I don't have a musical bone in my body. I can't clap on beat. Reality San Francisco does not clap because when I start clapping, everyone gets off beat. We don't clap. I wish we would, but I just can't. I, I can't even really even sing that well. I remember one time in Bakersfield, my pastor in Bakersfield believed that the the, the preacher was all, should also be the worship leader, so he made me one Sunday when I was preaching in big church lead worship. I, I was this guy here. It was bad. It was really, really, this was before like you recorded sermons and things like that. Thank you, God. But I had a lead, and it's, it's traumatic, and even when I talk about it, I get a little nervous just even thinking about it. But what I'm saying is moments, in, uh, moments of worship have shaped me. I moved to San Francisco from here because I was called by God right here in this room in a moment of worship. I was on my knees in the sanctuary. I was actually right over there. Um, the guy I'm pointing out with the black shirt, no, not the hat, the guy, raise your hand. Yeah, right there. Yeah, you. Okay, that, see him? Okay. I was sitting, I was right where you were. Right where that, right there. Honestly, right there. On the ground, right where your feet are, on my knees in worship. It was a Friday night. We were doing a ministry conference. Uh, Pastor Britt taught a, a sermon on like all ministry comes from a place of obscurity and obscurity is where you learn intimacy with God. And I was wrecked by this sermon. I had moved here asking God and my, my entire prayer life had become, God, where am I going next? And you know, when your intimacy with God is a, culminated and, and centered around a prayer request, it doesn't get good after that. Because the only reason why you're seeking God is for a thing, not for him. And I was really convicted by this. So I was sitting over there during the teaching, and for some reason, I have no idea, I went over there during music. So I moved over there, and I was just repenting. I got on my knees on that cold concrete floor, and I, I repented before God. God, I'm sorry that I've been seeking you for a thing and not for you. And at that moment, in worship, singing, God called me to San Francisco from this very room in worship. And then from there, I was singing, and God said, San Francisco. And the, my next thing out of my mouth when I was singing was, there's no way in the world, San Francisco. I'm from Bakersfield. I had to remind God, I'm from Bakersfield. People from Bakersfield don't move to San Francisco to do things. That's just not a thing. And, but what happened is, in worship, as I was connected to ultimate reality, in worship, you realize when you're before the throne of God, you realize that anything is possible. And so... In that moment, as I'm there going, there's no way I can go to Bakersfield. In worship, before the throne of God, anything's possible. This is ultimate reality, and it shaped me. And then we started the church, and we started the church out of prayer meetings. We prayed in this room for a while. We also prayed. I lived in an apartment down the street from here. We hosted prayer meetings. And one of the things that came up in our prayer meetings when we were praying for Reality San Francisco was this, this phrase that kept on coming up in every one of our prayer meetings as we were praying for our worship, our musical worship at Reality SF. And the phrase that came up, came to us during prayer was this, a moment in God's presence can answer a lifetime of questions. We built our entire church, Reality San Francisco, on this, basically this prayer right here. 
We believed as people got exposed to the presence of God in worship specifically, it would answer in a moment a lifetime of questions. People moved to San Francisco for all kinds of reasons. People in San Francisco have all kinds of questions. They have all kinds of theological questions. They have all kinds of questions, deep, deep, deep questions that don't have easy answers. Some of their questions have zero answers. There's no answer for them. But what I've found, what we've found, is that most time people, people that are asking these questions are not actually looking for answers. They're looking for ultimate reality. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for reason. And we believe that a moment in God's presence, we go, oh, I get it. I don't have all the answers to my questions, but I get it. My eyes have seen your salvation. I have perspective. You are the Lord who sits on the throne. I know who I am. I know who you are. What we call this moment is worship. When we're in the presence of God singing, we're in the presence of God around other people who are singing, even we might not even be the ones singing. We're just in the room and people are worshiping out loud something bigger than themselves and we get a picture of heaven. Now, I want to explain to you in this sermon why worship is so powerful and why it's so important. That's what I want to do. And so first, let's look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5 real quick. Did you notice all those crazy living figures around the throne of God? Like when you read it, you're like, whoa, those are some trippy things. These living creatures, they have eyes everywhere, even on their wings and under their wings, behind their wings. And then one of them looks like a lion and the other like an ox and like, one looks like a man. The other one looks like an eagle. Now, these are probably heavenly beings representing all of creation. And we say probably because it's revelation. A lot of it's symbolic. So these might be, these are probably heavenly beings that represent all of creation. And then you get the 24 elders who wear white, white robes that symbolizing purity and victory and worship. They have golden crowns symbolizing their share in God's reign. These are probably representing all the people of God. So you have all of creation all of God's people around the throne of God worshiping them. But more important than their identity, though their identity is kind of important, but more important than their identity is their activity. What are they doing in heaven? The answer is they never stop praising and worshiping the worthiness of God, the eternal one, the creator of the world. And they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. For eternity, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. So much so that Revelation chapter 5 has to indicate that there was a new song given. They sang this song for so long. They're like, oh, we got a new song now. They're like, there's a new song? This is kind of cool. We've been singing this one since like forever. We get a new one. And the new one is about the lamb who was slain. Now, what's, what's going on here? Revelation, the best way to understand the book of Revelation is the unveiling. What happens is that God, through John, the revelator, unveils the, the, the curtain between heaven and earth, between what we see and things that we don't see, and he unveils ultimate reality. In Revelation, we get a peek behind the veil, and we see that the heartbeat of all the cosmos is the un ceasing worship of God. What that means is that at the core of ultimate reality is the unceasing worship of God. The unceasing worship of God because he's holy and worthy and because Jesus has redeemed us through his sacrificial love. This is exactly what we see at Jesus' birth. 
Jesus is born, and the Magi say, they show up, they're going, where is the Christ child? Where is he supposed to be born? We have come so that we might worship him. And Luke's telling of the Advent story, it says the heavenly host busted out and began to praise God vocally. This is at the core of what, it, what ultimate reality is. Even when we humans on earth do not see it, we might not participate in it, we might not even value it, God and the unceasing worship of God is the very center of ultimate reality, which explains very practically and vividly the importance of gathering regularly. This is so important to gather regularly for congregational worship as a church. This right here, every week, the church, those who follow Jesus, stop their week or begin their week, depending on how you see it, by collectively showing up at the same place at the same time and together what we do what, what church is, what this is, is we, lo- we log into a live stream of what's going on in ultimate reality. That's what we do. You show up in a room, and we kind of all plug in to what's going on ultimately, which is holy, 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 no matter what is going on in the world and our, or in our small worlds. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is why church doesn't start at 820 or 1045. Every gathering begins with a call to worship. Today, um, I don't know if you were here on time, but uh, Tyler came up and gave a call to worship. There's a big difference in church starting at, at 1045 and a call to worship is at 1045. A call to worship is a congregational call to collectively participate in worship that has already been going on. You don't start it, it's already happening. So when you show up to church, it doesn't start at 1045. What we do congregationally is we get into a room and we're going, we're going to link up to what's true right now. We're going to link up to something that's already going on and has been going on forever. And this corporate time of singing and learning and praying and responding to God shapes us and forms us and informs us about ultimate reality. You need this. You need every single week to get into a room with God's people and as an act of counter-formation, write that down, counter-formation, worship. Meaning, this is what counter-formation means. You are, I know, I know you know this, you're smart people. You are being formed in all these different ways throughout the week. Your soul is malleable. It's formative. It could be formed. Where you work, who you work with around your news feed, your social media channels, what, what you watch, where you shop, what you do throughout your, your week. We live in a world system that desires our total devotion, our praise, our crowns, all of it. And it's shaping us to become a kind of person. Our politics shape us. The fact that we're American, Western consumers shape us. This is a product of our world, our society. And what the church does every single week is what we stop and we say only God is worthy to receive what others might want or demand. Only God is worthy of my total devotion. And I will, in a, in a, in a counterformative way, come forward and receive communion. I will worship and sing. I will sit under God's word. I will be shaped and reshaped because worship reorients us to ultimate reality. Worship reorients us. When you're oriented into all the ways of this world throughout the week, worship reorients us to what is true. 
Now, let me explain why worship reorients us to ultimate reality. Let me, let me talk about why this is true. First of all, for those of you that miss church and think, well, I can just get the podcast, that's not the same thing. Church is not about the sermon. It's about God's people gathered to connect with ultimate reality and respond with our bodies to what the Spirit is saying to us. And so when we, we reduce church to a podcast that we can just, oh, I can just miss church this week because the surf's really good or something like that, and I'll get the podcast, that is not the same thing. We need to get into a room and all of us be reoriented to what is true and what is real. And that is the unceasing worship of God. Now, let me explain why, why and how this is true. First, why this is true. Why we need to do this. David Foster Wallace is a very famous, he's deceased now. He, he took his life a few years ago. But he's a, he was an American novelist who wrote prolifically, very, um, he's not a Christian, very widely uh, read and accepted novelist in, 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 in American culture. And he was given a speech at, 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 at a college, and, he's, and the speech is called This is Water. It's one of the best speeches you'll ever hear. He's not a Christian, but look what he says in the speech. He says, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. What he's telling a bunch of graduating seniors at a college, as an American novelist, a a very respected novelist, is that every single one of you worships something. And there's actually a really good argument for you to worship God. Because everything else you worship from this point forward will eat you alive. If you can go worship power, it will destroy you. If you worship money, it will destroy you. If you worship beauty, it will, everything else will destroy you. He's saying the exact same thing the Bible is saying, by the way. Exact same thing. Every idol that is not God will kill you. It does not have, it does not have the power to support your soul. And what David Foster Wallace, DFW, says is that he calls it a trick. He's like, the trick, I call it a practice. The trick is keeping this reality up front in your daily consciousness all the time. So every single time you're, you, want to, you want to find meaning from your beauty or you want to find meaning from your money, you want to find meaning from your job, you want to find meaning from the information or meaning from your politics, just know that it's going to destroy you. And what you need to do every single day is keep the truth of God in your consciousness. What DFW is saying is that what you worship forms you. It shapes you. It orients you. He's basically saying that you are what you worship. You become like what you worship. Author and um, New York Times columnist David Brooks, a very conservative New York Times columnist, actually, David Brooks said in a lecture on maturing and aging, one of the, one of the best lectures I think I've ever 
I've ever listened to. He said that the reason why there's, there's a lack of meaning in our culture, so we have, a, we have a meaning problem. The reason why millennials are like lost is that we haven't given them a meaning. We've given them, basically, you are what you buy. You are what you consume. And that's, what they grew, that's the message they grew up hearing. And we have a meaning problem. And he says, and here's why. He says, as a society, we've made three bad philosophical bets in our culture, which has made it particularly hard to find meaning and purpose in this world. And he says, one of the bets, and he says this in a kind of highbrow way, but I think it, it actually has a, a lot of depth to it and a lot of like, we, we can all relate to it. He says, we chose Descartes when we should have chosen Augustine. And he, what he means by that, he said, we've chosen Descartes when we should, have, we should have chosen Augustine. That's one bad philosophical bet that our society made. What he means by that, and he goes on to explain, is we chose to think of ourselves as cognitive thinking creatures, I think therefore I am, when we are primarily longing creatures or loving creatures, creatures shaped by desire. And he said, the problem is, you think if you have the right information or know the right things, all will be well in the world. And so what we think is that education is always the answer because we think of ourselves as thinking beings because that's actually not true. You are a longing creature. You are a desiring creature. Augustine had it right. You are what you love. Your love's shape, which gets back to David Foster Wallace. Make sure that you love the right things because what you love will shape you. If you love the wrong things, it will kill you. We are longing creatures. We are creatures full of desire. Example of this, we know that buying responsible and ethically made things not made by slaves is a good thing. We know this cognitively. We know this is an important thing. We know this because we've watched documentaries on this on Netflix. This shows up on our, on our news feeds and our blogs. We've read articles. The problem is we really want that cheap new T-shirt. We really want that new phone. See, our minds don't make the decision. Our desire does. Our desire to want something new and our, and our desire for a good price overrides how we think about how it was made. Another example is we know, I know, that eating farm to table is better for my body and our environment. But my body craves Panda Express. <laughs> like, craves it, Right? So I know, I walk into an airport, I walk into a mall or something, I'm like, I should eat a locally sourced salad, it's better for the environment, it's better for my body. Then I smell orange chicken, I'm like, oh, my des- I know the right thing to do, but my desires take over. I want that Rudy's crispy taco, that's what I want. So we are longing creatures. This is graphically and horrifically summed up by R. Kelly. If you know who R. Kelly is, he was in the ni- an R&B guy in the 90s, he's a horrible person, but 1993 he had a song. And he sing, his song opens up like this, and this came out when I was in junior high, and I remember it vividly. My mind keeps telling me no, but my body, my body's telling me yes. That's his song. And I, it was seared in my mind. This is basically the song that goes through my mind every single time I see a Panda Express. Like, my mind is telling me no, but my body. See, basically what R. Kelly is saying, my mind keeps telling me no, but my body, that's basically Augustine theology at its worst. Augustine theology is that you are what you love. You're shaped by your desires. You are more of a longing creature than a thinking creature. Or R. Kelly would say, my, my mind keeps telling me no, but my body says yes. Because that's who we are. And so what happens is that worship, worship reshapes, reorients our desires, our loves, to want and love the right thing. And it's not that our desires are too much 
or that we desire too much. Because most of us would go, but I desire so much. How can God meet my desires? I want it all. C.S. Lewis would say, that's not the problem. C.S. Lewis would say, it's not that you desire too much, it's that you don't desire enough. He says this in The Weight of Glory. He goes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires too, not, not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. What happens is that you and I are so pleased by, by silly, trivial things. When God offers us true weight of glory, when God offers us true, true, true meaning, See, Westminster Shorter Catechism asks one of the most famous and most important questions anyone can ask themselves, and it's this. First question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The modern catechism, our modern catechism sounds more like this. What is the chief end of man? Answer, to acquire stuff with the illusion that I can enjoy it forever. This is what everyone keeps We know this to be true. Everyone in my town, where I'm from, every tech company, from Apple to... They know that they're getting you addicted to something that they want to keep you addicted to. This is why they don't allow their kids to use their products. Honestly, that's true, by the way. This is why, because we are longing creatures. Our society is built on making sure that we're longing after the next thing. I'm, I am, confession, this is, I do this too. I'm not saying I don't do this. I do this too. I have to constantly be checking my heart and my motives because I am immersed in civic rituals that form my, perp- my desires. I'm involved in civic rituals that inform my desires, like Pinterest. Do you guys know what Pinterest is? I have... Uh, I have a lot of friends that work there, and one of my friends came to me after church one Sunday a few months ago, and I said, hey, I have a confession to make. It's like, whoa, it's got heavy. What's up? I go, I, I got on Pinterest, finally. He's like, you just, just got on Pinterest? I thought you would love this thing. Like, it's all your, like, you could put all your favorite stuff, you like design and fashion, whatever, and you're like, I thought you would be on this years ago. I'm like, no, I, I just couldn't because I know my own heart. But I got on it because we just got a house, and my wife, Ash, and I are sharing a Pinterest board so we can figure out how we want to decorate the house and stuff like this. And then I got completely addicted to it, and I think it's the devil. And th- let me tell you, I said, let me tell you what it's like. I go, I was in Rome, and I went to the Pantheon. And when you go to the Pantheon, it's basically this beautiful structure where all these little carved-out places to put idols everywhere in the entire Pantheon. I go, Pinterest is Pantheon where you have your own pantheon and you collect little idols and you put them on your board and they're everywhere and they live there. Pinterest is like, a, it's like curated idolatry. It's like, hey, do you want to come into my pantheon? I mean, do you want to see my Pinterest board? And it's like all the things that you're worshiping and longing for and want in your life and it's not even real. It's just an image on a screen and he looks at me and he laughs and he goes, aha, it's working. I'm like, what do you mean it's working? Of course it's working. You're just playing into like my, my, my desires and... What I have to do, I have to come to the house of God and tell my body and my mind every single week, that's not real. God is ultimate reality. I need to put away my phone. I need to put away 
the, the newspaper. I need to put away the news. I need to put away the things I want. I need to come into the house of God and go, that is not real. This is ultimate reality. This is why, like we talked about last week, intimacy with Jesus. Every single morning, I need to be reshaping my desires around this stuff. Every single morning. See, discipleship to Jesus is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than knowing and believing. Hungering and thirsting. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, with his wants, with his desires, with his desires and his hungering for God's will. This is why Jesus says to love the Lord your God. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect but forms our loves. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. This happens in worship and always has. Eugene Peterson says this in his book, Reverse Thunder. This is such an amazing quote. I'm going to read it slow because I want you to get it. He says, worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. You see what he did there? That was genius. He says, we worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to some, consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. If there is no center, there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness, epidemic in the world, with no steady direction and no sustained purpose. This is what happens when we don't worship. We get knocked off center. We have no center. Restlessness enters into our world where we keep on wanting to consume and consume and consume and want and want and want. Because the thing that you're longing for, you have a holy longing. You're longing for the thing. I think that, I think consumerism is a hijacked desire of Satan that you want and want and want and want and never can have enough. And that is, that. That idea is actually not broken. It's the way that we try to get to that idea because we were, we were made for the infinite. If you and I were built for the infinite, that the, only the infinite can satisfy us, which is why it feels like we have an infinite hole in our hearts that we try to fill with everything and nothing actually works. You were created and I were created for the infinite. This is why worship reorients us to ultimate reality. Now, how? Let me, let me end here. Let me end with how this works. And here's why I want to talk about singing and why singing is a, such an important part of worship. One of my favorite rappers right now, hip-hop artist, is a guy named Chance the Rapper. And he was recently being interviewed by Stephen Colbert and was talking about, with Stephen Colbert, about how uh, Stephen Colbert asked him if he still goes to church. He went to church growing up, still goes to church. Actually, just heard he's on this like sabbatical where he's studying the Bible right now. And so, like, do you still go to church? Like, you're so popular. Does your churches get bombarded with people? Who look? He's like, no, I, I go to church every single week. Like, wh- why, why do you still go to church? He goes, it's, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, but he, meant, he pointed out singing. I need to sing every week the, the songs that we sing at church. And he said, had this quote. He said, because I believe singing is praying twice, he said. Singing is praying twice. And then Colbert was like, what do, what, what do you mean by this? And he goes, what he meant by that was this. Words have their own meaning, 
but the expression of your heart comes through the sound of music in ways the words by themselves cannot capture. So there's the words that have meaning, but then it's your heart showing up and singing the words that has a double meaning. So not only do the words have meaning, but your heart has meaning singing the words. The sound of the songs reach us in a way that words alone can't reach. This is why whenever any Sunday where I quote a song, it doesn't have the same impact. I can, I can quote you a song, O Lord my God, when in, in awesome wonder, consider all the works thy hands have made. I see the stars... I hear the roaring thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. But how many of you guys are singing that in your head right now? It's different, huh? And then, then sings my soul. You start, and then you start singing it. That's where the power comes from. It's, it, w- there's words that have their own meaning, but when put to music, and you start then sings, not then says my soul, not then talks my soul, not then reads my soul, but then sings my soul. And I sing that to God out of tune almost every morning. And I will try sometimes, sometimes I quote, oh Lord my God, when, and then I, then I get, in, and then I sing, and I, I sound like, you know when Clint Eastwood tries to sing, it's just like, like that kind of thing is like what I sound like. And I, I think God is so happy with that, just like, out of tune, here's my soul, I'm singing it to God. But what if you don't feel like it? What if you don't feel like worshiping? The night of Jesus' betrayal, the most intense night of his ministry, he gives his disciples communion, tells them someone's going to betray him. We talked about this last week, it's pretty intense. And then in Mark's gospel, it says this right after that happened. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. When they had sung a hymn on this night, when Jesus is about to be betrayed, when Judas had already in his heart left and was going to betray Jesus, they sang a hymn. I've often thought about that night, the emotion of it, how the furthest thing away from them would have been wanting to sing. Jesus saying, I'm going to leave you. Let's sing. But they do. Sometimes you worship when you don't feel like it, but you have to. When I was researching this sermon, I was researching African-American spirituals, historically, historically called Negro spirituals, the origins of gospel music. And I was watching a documentary on it, and Dr. James Norris, the professor of music at Howard University in D.C., and he's also the director of the Howard Choir, was being interviewed on how songs came out of the horrific struggle and pains of slavery. And he was being interviewed like, how did... From slavery, what we still have today is a history of songs that came from... How in the world did that happen? He was being interviewed, and he said this. He said, I look at them, speaking of his, his, his ancestors, and I marvel. Marvel on how we got through all this. And how we got through it all by what? Singing. He said, I look through this horrible part of our national history... And how did we get through it? How did we get through it? And this is both historically documented. We know this to be true. And he's, he, he's a historian. He's like, you know how we got through it? Singing. The power of song. The power of faith and song. Because song and singing tells our hearts and our minds that there's a greater and more true reality than what we see and what we're experiencing right now. And so they would be in the midst of slavery singing, wade in the water. Wade in the water. Children, wade in the water. God's going to trouble the water. They would sing this as slaves with hope 
That one day, God's going to disrupt this whole thing. That one day, there will be freedom. That one day, God will deliver. That one day, children wait in the water. God's going to trouble the water. The water that we're swimming in, that seems to be drowning in it. Hey, wait in it. God's going to do something. And this was the hope that they had. How do they get through that time? And he would say, singing. Not only is singing an important part of life, an important part of the reorientation, but it's also a part, uh, worship is an important part of our physical posture. Like worship has a physicality to it that's important. Worship, the term worship in the Bible used over 24 times is proskuneo, which in most passages this word describes uh, some physicality, whether it's kneeling or kissing, an act of both our, our words and our body. So basically, worship actually uh, biblically takes on physicality. So when the elders worship, they fall to their knees. When the, when the, um, the creatures worship, they cover their faces. It's, it's physical. They're doing something with their body. They're not just like, then sing, smile. They're like, they're, they're lifting their hands. They're, kneeling. they're doing something physical with their bodies when they do this. And the reason why Amy, Amy Cuddy had a TED Talk called Your Body Language May Shape Who You Are. And she talks about how, she talks about the power pose and the importance of our body language. She says, as a social scientist, that body language is an actual language. And our body language informs our minds. Our, our, the effects of body language has uh, huge effects on our brain and what we think about reality. She says, when you go into uh, a... Um, and you go to an interview, it's really important to, ha- to strike a power pose and hold it for like a minute before you go into the interview, she says. And that, that actually rewires your brain to step in it with confidence. So you just power, I don't know what a power pose is, just like a, whatever a power pose is, before an interview, you just like, boom, hold it, and then walk in, and then it completely changes. She goes, it, re- it actually reorients your, your mind to reality. Like, I'm not this weak person that just walks in like, oh, please hire me. It's like, no, you want me, like that sort of thing. She goes, if you hold a smile, for a minute, how that reorients your mind as well. And I think this is really important because worship does this as well. The posture that we take by lifting our hands when we don't feel like it, or we don't want to, or kneeling when we don't want to, it informs your mind and your heart of things that we should be desiring because that's ultimate reality. Physical worship is partnering with our bodies to speak prophetically over the identity of our souls. Our bodies can conspire with our souls to go, body, this is what, you're going through X, Y, and Z right now, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to kneel because our soul needs this. This is what happens, how we work with our bodies to tell a truer story about who we are and who God says we are. Now, for some of you, you're like, well, that's not authentic. Are you saying to fake it till I make it? I'm not saying fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it is agreeing to be complicit in a lie. What I'm asking you to do is practice until you become it. Because this is ultimate reality. This, God on his throne, is ultimate reality. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, would you stand with me and let's read this out loud together. 
all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped God. Thank you. Thank you, God, that we could link up to this true thing right now that is truer than our, than our circumstances, that are truer than our, our news feeds right now, that are truer than things that we want, our Christmas lists, all the pain in this world, whatever we're, this is true. This is ultimate reality. And as we right now sync up to this, may you reorient our bodies and our minds and our hearts. If there's any disordered desire, realign the desires of lust and greed selfishness and retribution and pride. Reorder us, God. Show us how you must increase and we must decrease. Do this now as we sing and worship. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.